Hello and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the digital audio stream in which we are casting gods out, broadcasting our doubt, and casting about for answers to difficult questions. Today on the show, it's the last of the Free OK Speakers series, is Sean Faircloth, an American author and politician from Maine. Sean is the author of Attack of the Theocrats, How the Religious Right Harms Us All, and What We Can Do About It. He's an attorney and a five-term state legislator. While in the Maine legislature, Faircloth was appointed to the Judiciary and Appropriations Committees, and in his final term, he was elected Majority Whip. In 2009, he became the Executive Director of the Secular Coalition for America, advocating for separation of church and state and for greater acceptance of non-theistic viewpoints in American life. In September of 2011, he became the Director of Strategy and Policy for the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, and was the opening speaker on Richard Dawkins' book tour. In today's episode, we're going to talk with him a bit on ideas for furthering secularism and church-state separation here in Oklahoma and in Iowa and everywhere. Enjoy the show. Uh, we'll start then right off the bat. You know, right now, you're working for the Richard Dawkins Foundation. We'll, we'll work backwards from there. So what is your what are you doing currently? Okay. I'm the Director of Strategy and Policy with the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. And I'm the author of the book, Attack of the Theocrats, How the Religious Right Harms Us All and What We Can Do About It. And, the, and what we can do about it is the key phrase. Now, when you wrote that book, you were not yet with the RDF. Is that right? True, yeah. You, you were still working for the Secular Coalition for America. I was the executive director of Secular Coalition for America and wrote the Secular Decade Plan for them, which included 50 state secular coalitions. Oh, that was part of your plan. That was my plan. We were on the call when Oklahoma got in on that. We're local uh, Americans United activists. Of course, there's a lot of overlap there between those two groups. Yes. You know, as much as I would like to say that we're, we're just overwhelmed with new activists coming in all the time, that's <laughs> not actually the case. So what do you what do you do for with RDF right now? What are you promoting? A big part of my job is organizing for a secular world, uh, coming up with innovative strategies. My background is 10 years as an elected official. I was 10 years in the Maine state legislature. I served on Judiciary Committee six years, Appropriations Committee two years, and my last term I was elected majority whip by my colleagues. So far as I know, I'm the only um, elected official who is now in whatever you want to call it, the skeptic, humanist, atheist industry mm -hmm. as an employee. And so my work is really focused on how do you turn this movement into uh, successful societal change. So when I was lobbyist, you mentioned I was executive director at, at Secular Coalition for America. Prior to that, I'd spent two years lobbying for my state bar association, so for lawyers in my home state. So I've lobbied both in Washington and at the state level. And uh, from those experiences and from being in politics 10 years myself, I really feel like the big missing puzzle piece is getting our numbers of activists, kind of perhaps what you were alluding to, but getting our numbers of activists and numbers of donors up uh, so that we can really have the sort of uh, force credibility, if you will, in American society. That, to be blunt, we're still lacking. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. When I was lobbying for the Bar Association, 
however dumb or smart I may or may not be, um, when you're the lobbyist for the bar association, people listen. Even if they don't like or what you say or disagree with what you say, they still listen. The politicians listen because they know the bar association. They've got clout. Mm-hmm. With uh, non-theists and skeptics and all the rest of it, um, we still need to build that clout. So it doesn't matter if you have the most brilliant argument ever. You need to have clout. And that's really... Uh, with the Richard Dawkins Foundation, I have a, a huge uh, opportunity for which I'm very thankful to sort of bring my political uh, organizing background to bear on what I think is the greatest task we have before us. So what can we do to build our clout? I know that we that one of the things RDF is doing is trying to get atheists to come out of the closet with the out campaign. Yes. And I feel like if, if people were just aware of how how many of us there are out here – and if legislators in particular were hearing from us, um, then we would have much more clout. But what, what do you think is the strategy to get us more influence in, in the halls of, of the legislature? Well, that's an excellent campaign instituted by the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. And I encourage you to visit our website and go to our Facebook page, uh, Richard Dawkins Foundation uh, uh, official Facebook page, and have everybody, everybody check it out. Um, the next step for me is more formalized organization. So I recently got back from a speaking tour in Australia and New Zealand, spoke at the Sydney Opera House. It's a great honor to be there. They're starting up a national um, secular organization. And why that's distinctive is sort of interesting because I was talking to people in Australia and they said, well, we're, we had the biggest convention of all, period, bar none. Forget the United States. We've had the <laughs> biggest convention ever. And they're right, they have. And I talked to a lot of the organizers for that convention, and they said, yeah, we had the first giant convention, then we had the second giant convention, but there was sort of, especially as to the second convention, a kind of a feeling of, okay, and now what? And to me, the now what is affecting your society. So they said how they had a big Australian convention, and effectively none of the, oh, I shouldn't say none, but the vast majority of topics had nothing to do with what was actually happening in Australia. Mm. So they talked about, you know, the global do you believe, do you not believe, the philosophical issues, some science stuff, skeptic stuff, all great, all good, should be at all conventions. I certainly am glad people have that. But what was lacking was, okay, how do we organize and change society? And one of the key things is actually having conventions that have that focus. So, for example, when I'm coming to Oklahoma, that's going to be part of my focus is, is what do we do? And a key step is to have statewide free thought conventions, and I'm glad to see you folks are headed in that direction, but have them regularly scheduled so people come to expect them. And also that an element of that convention is social action. So knowing what's happening in, the, in this case, the Oklahoma uh, legislature, uh, talking and organizing about those issues understanding uh, the federal U.S. issues and having speakers who are not just, as I so often see, people will say, let's get this really cool national and international speaker. And I'm glad when people have an international speaker. That's wonderful. But I don't think we should be so reliant upon that. So I want to see, I don't know, a really smart uh, professor on church-state issues from Oklahoma State or University of Oklahoma uh, coming and and speaking at a convention, Uh, local organizers talking about their work. So it's got a real localized flavor, and 
I submit to you that once we have those, and this is a goal of my work at the Richard Dawkins Foundation and of the foundation overall, is that there are 50 well-organized free thought conventions, every single state of the union by 2020, uh, that kind of focus and have some aspect of focus on, on policy. So that's one major area that I'm, that I'm working on. Wow. We, we actually do a couple events every year to, um, to try to spin people up on what's going on in the legislature here in Oklahoma. But they're they're under the auspices of Americans United. They're not. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people that show up from the atheist groups, but they're you know they're not part. They're not rolled into you know, with the the secular groups are there in the sense that they're helping us build audience. Yeah, and in fact, it was started by you know Baptists. Uh, <laughs> AU was. Yeah, our our AU local chapter was founded in, entirely by Baptists, hardcore old school Baptists. And that's all good. You know, if they're for separation of church and state, I say we build a team, and I have no problem with that. Absolutely. Uh, sort of next step, another project I'm working on, which I'll be addressing in Oklahoma soon, is to really alter the political process in this country. How do you do that? Well, I'm working on a project in the state of Iowa. Uh, and the idea is, as many of your listeners probably are aware, Iowa, since Jimmy Carter, uh, has been the first big state of the presidential process. Mm. And there are more reporters per capita in Iowa than any place else in the U.S. for these months that lead up to the presidential caucus, in this case in January of 2016. We're organizing an on-the-ground grassroots effort in Iowa to really, uh, the name of the campaign is Get Religion Out of Government. And we're not just talking about Iowa, this is a national effort. So I'm going to be talking about people in Oklahoma reserving their week to come to Iowa to do what? To change the entire history of the United States. I think that's a good idea. Because right now, the religious right snuck up on people, mostly in the 70s, in Iowa and places like that, and really grabbed the ball, stripped it, if you will, from the Republicans and sort of took over their party. And um, we intend to do that for the good guys. That is, I'm going to Iowa speaking in August. We're going to build alliances with uh, folks like the uh, Interfaith Alliance, sort of similar to what you're talking about, so that we'll have liberal religious groups that support separation of church and state locally in Iowa. But we're also going to bring in people from every single state of the union. Picture the reason, Rally. Picture the kind of numbers that you had there. Mm -hmm. But with a very specific task-oriented focus, and that is, T-shirts showing up at every single political event in the state of Iowa that say get religion out of government. When you fly into Iowa, there's only one way to get into Iowa. For most folks, they fly in through Des Moines Airport, giant billboard, get religion out of government. Lawn signs, international celebrities coming to Iowa for this purpose. The Richard Dawkins Foundation is, is it's really a great honor to be there because uh, you know I've been his opening speaker now for three tours, and you get to talk to hundreds upon hundreds of people all at once, like I never would on my own. And also just being from the foundation and with my book, I've been able to speak to a lot of people. I went and spoke in Florida recently, and I sort of joked about Iowa vacation spot of the world. By the end of my speech, the majority of people in the room were committed. They are going to Iowa in 2015. Nice. That's incredible. Yeah, I I don't mind a trip to Iowa. I'm from Illinois, so I can visit relatives while I'm over there. It's all good. (laughs) We're going to divide up the state. We're going to have a paid staffer on the ground in Iowa, just like a political campaign 
starting in January 2015. And these reporters, it's amazing. I've, this is, I'm going to do my fourth trip to Iowa here soon planning this. And these reporters are desperate for a story. Uh, they're there sort of camped out from the spring of the year before the caucus to the caucus. So it's like eight, nine months. Oh, wow. It's like having a baby is amount of time, you know. And these reporters got to find something to report on. They want a big story. We're going to give them one, and we're going to change America with it. So it's, it's you know, trying to affect the whole country, but it's a very focused attack and not just, you know, going to D.C. and making a big hubbub and then leaving. The key thing about Iowa is the, the sort of leverageability, if you will, because there's no other opportunity to get in front of reporters so easily and so many reporters. I went to uh, the big rally for Mitt Romney a few days before the election. It was remarkable. Now, obviously, Mitt Romney is no Barack Obama. I mean, he had Obama had sort of a Beatles effect back in 2008. Mm. But... Romney was the inside guy, and he was their big player. And I went to see him all, by the way. I saw almost every single candidate. Uh, and um, Romney had a crowd that was not much different than my crowd for my state Senate kickoff. <laughs> you know, when I ran for the state legislature back home in Maine. Now, maybe that's, some of that's more of a reflection on Romney than anything else. But nonetheless, all the crowds were not that significant. And the key thing huge portion of the crowd was what reporters from madrid from tokyo from <laughs> new york it was just amazing the number of reporters you could just walk up and talk to all these national international level reporters so we're going to do that with these get religion out of government t-shirts we're going to have very trained volunteers so they're going to know very specific talking points about getting religion out of government focused on some of the victim issues that are in my book, which is a key thesis of this, is that we're going to make it human. We're not going to be in a debate about religion. We're going to show people why religion and government is bad. That brings me to my next question, which is uh, you're talking about the, the not tactics so much as strategy, the, the strategy of how to approach this overall. And you, you bring in this idea that uh, there's these, these special religious privileges uh, like the exemption for religious daycare centers, which you talked about in your book, uh, that are a big deal that cause genuine human suffering. And we atheists tend to focus on symbolic things like under God and the pledge. I just think that is a key strategic turning point. Now, bear in mind, I'm a lawyer. Uh, if I were a judge and someone brought those, uh, what they sometimes call ceremonial deism before me, you could be guaranteed I'd be, you know, that those Ten Commandments would be gone from the courthouse law and all that. But from a political strategic viewpoint rather than a legal viewpoint, mm -hmm. uh, I submit that getting people to say, oh, really, that little child died in this religious child care where they had zero health and safety regulations. Why did they have zero health and safety regulations? Oh, because they're religious. So uh, two child care side by side, the only difference is that one labels itself religious, and they get to exempt themselves from the laws that applies to everyone else. Now, that's 13 states. It's not all the states. But, I mean, it's a really heinous example of many. In my book, I give 10, 10 areas of law. Now, most of your listeners are probably familiar with the sort of famous two, I call them, which is marriage equality and women's reproductive issues. Most people, if they're anyway, you know, halfway informed, they know about those two. But I give eight more, children's issues being a very important one where there's real human victims 
And I think that's the key for the Iowa strategy as well, is we're not going to, you know, I, for one, if someone wants to talk to me at the local restaurant or bar or something and say, hey, why are you not religious? I'll happily debate, you know, all the philosophical arguments with them. But that's not my mission in Iowa, and that's not my mission with seeing free thought conventions in every single state. I want it so our friends and neighbors, including our religious friends and neighbors, many of whom are reasonable people, go, oh, really? That kid died? Oh, really? There's a minister who has uh, three-quarters of a million-dollar home in some small town in the Midwest, and we're subsidizing it through this unique provision in the IRS code that only ministers get, and there's no upper limit, doesn't matter how extravagant the house. The vast majority of atheists, forget the vast majority of Americans, the vast majority of atheists don't know about that IRS code provision. It's totally outrageous. Let's let's bring the outrage with evidence. That's uh that's incredible because that's that's definitely something that I I wouldn't generally think is a church state separation uh church state issue. And in fact, I'm I'm pretty I'm usually pretty strict, but the way you present it, um, yeah, that's very compelling. We had this one case. Uh, there's a Narconon, um, it's a Narconon drug rehab facility in close to Tulsa, and they had a couple people die there because it seems that they're not taking care of their patients that well. We should but, we should mention at this point that Narconon is uh, a, an affiliate of Scientology. It's a faith-based okay. qu- program for quitting drugs. It is not in any way related to like legitimate <laughs> things like Al-Anon. No, right. But gotcha. and but right now they're saying they're not exactly, you know, they're not strictly Scientology. You know, they they're not admitting to it, but they now they're being forced to you know actually have real regulations but and if they but if they bring it down to a level like they have five patients or below you know and they stay make out these bunch of different facilities instead of one giant one there's um there's a an exception in the law for religious people and things like that to take care of to take care of people like that and they don't have to adhere to uh other regulations normal regulations the law is swiss cheese Mm -hmm. these kind of religious exemptions that most people, including atheists, have never heard about. And the big goal of my book, sort of twofold, you know, is how the religious right harms us all, is that kind of things we're talking about right now in terms of examples for your neighbors. That's what I want. It's sort of like a toolkit. So my book, if you're looking for great philosophy on religion, there's this obscure scientist you may have heard, may have heard of him called Richard Dawkins. I recommend his books. You know, as far as uh, issues of belief in God or science, that sort of thing. That's not what my book is about at all. It's like saying, here's a person hurt. Here's another person hurt. Here's another person hurt. So that you can go and talk to your neighbors and say, no, I'm just not, you know, trying to debate you to debate you. This really matters to people's lives. And then part two is, and what are we going to do about it? And that organizing. And just to sort of continue with the organizing, one of the things also we're doing at the Richard Dawkins Foundation uh, for reason in science is uh, I've got a young lawyer working with me. We're creating a database. There's a speech uh, you can see on YouTube of mine about the religio-industrial complex, I call it, and it talks about the ministers and their homes. And people think this is like one or two people, like Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen, and it certainly is those ultra-mega ministers. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. They're all over we did this video where, you know, now I'll get people randomly 
sending me messages, and I had someone from Anchorage, Alaska. I had someone from like small town, not Detroit area, small town, Michigan, send a message and say, yeah, this person's got like a many hundreds of thousands of dollars home. You know, the rest of us are living in, you know, very modest circumstances. And then when you find out, oh, they're probably using the parsonage exemption, mm-hmm. that means they're going into our pocket, taking the money out of our pocket, and handing it to some guy who says, you know, women should be subordinate and gay people are bad. It's just outrageous. So these are the kind of things that uh, we're organizing about. So the free thought conventions in every single state of the union, in fact, now we're talking about internationally, so like national ones like in Australia and elsewhere, Canada, and then this uh, exposing them so your listeners can say, okay, I'm willing to do research. I know how to work online. Uh, let's go check out the homes of mega ministers, send them to this attorney I'm working with, and we create a database of these people for a potential documentary that shows uh, what they're doing. And then the Iowa Project, which everybody, everybody can participate in and really have a historic impact. We've got a, a massive uh, facility here in Edmond, where I live, which is um, <laughs> which is uh, the the root of the the church that DJ Grothy grew up in. So I can yeah. go check out see <laughs> see what they're up to. Yeah, it's not that hard in the sense of uh, a lot of this stuff is Googleable, public record. You know, you can find out. Oh, here's Minister Jones. Oh, where does he live? Here's his house. Wow, Google Maps. There it is. And you can see, you know, there's some people, and I don't want to stereotype, there's lots of ministers who live very humble lives. I would still say that even if you're the so-called humble minister, in my book, if you've got a 501c3 nonprofit, say you're the secular nonprofit that's for poor babies with AIDS, you know, or something like that, the executive director of that nonprofit's struggling. You know, they don't get some special exemption for their house. Why should a minister who's running a so-called nonprofit that nonetheless lines his pocket financially, why should they get this huge exemption for their house? Makes absolutely no sense, but that's the law. I want people to know about it. I want to, you know, I want to shine a light on it and have people understand it's pretty much every community in America has these folks ripping off the system. And that's just one of the examples. Land use, planning, you name it. Most people focus on the fact that churches don't have to pay property taxes but I think your case is a little more compelling, really. Well, here's the thing. I, I don't think churches should have that either, so I'm in full agreement. But here's the, the problem with the church uh, debate back at us is they'll say, well, hey, you're nonprofit, you know, you're secular nonprofit. They are often tax exempt for, you know, property tax or contributions yeah. to them. You can deduct your contributions to a 501c3 nonprofit. And you can deduct your contributions to a church. So they say level playing field. So I really – I don't want that either because to me what they don't tell the truth about or what they leave out, let's put it that way, is that a secular nonprofit has to have a separate board. They have to have oversight of their finances. Right. In, in a church, they don't even have to file a 990. You know, Most of your listeners, if they're familiar, I, used to, I started a children's museum back in Maine. I was the executive director back home in Maine. My children's museum, we had to file all our paperwork with the IRS. We had to show that we're – you know. Uh, achieving our our community service purpose, we had to file our 990s. These churches, they're basically like financial black boxes. It's very (laughs) difficult to see what financially is going on, and they don't have to file a 990. They even have a provision, really remarkable, that only a high IRS official, very few people know this, only a high IRS official can seek out an audit. And they've actually, churches have actually successfully sued because some regular you know, IRS auditor said, hey, we're going to audit you. We hear some 
you know, let's say you're practicing or preaching politics from the pulpit, which you're not supposed to do, mm-hmm. we want to audit you. A church sued successfully because they said, uh-uh, that, that you were not a high enough level IRS official, so your, your uh, investigation is blocked. Whereas if you, as an individual, or you as a for-profit business, or you as a 501c3, any old IRS official will do, as you might expect. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, wow. We've been, uh, well, <laughs> we've been dealing with, with some of that here, trying to get our, our, our organization um, spun up as a 501c3. Well, it's ch- there's work to it, you know, and you got to have a board and all that kind of stuff. And to me, that's the right thing, because in the end, when you get a 501c3 status, and you, that means people can get tax deductions for their gifts to you, I th- then the, the public has an interest in making sure those tax-deductible gifts are being used properly. And churches, totally, in my view, they just get a walk. They get a free pass. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that we'd get the free pass, that we'd go for the free pass <laughs> and say, you know, our atheist group is, gonna, uh, is going to try to follow the rules that churches have to follow because they're so lax. Well, that's an entertaining, you know, as you know, there have been, like you said, there's some of these uh, parody churches. The problem is they have that sincere belief provision, which is hard for us to pull off with this flying spaghetti monster sort of yeah. thing. We sincerely believe in humanism and the fact that there are no gods, so that should count for something. Yeah. I just didn't, we didn't go that route here in Oklahoma. Yes. Well, you know, there are two groups, uh, the Society for Humanistic Judaism, which is non-theistic, but yet has status as a religion. And then there's ethical culture. So there are two groups, non-theistic, that do meet the religious criteria, but they kind of they have analogous celebrants, excuse me, celebrants yeah. analogous to ministers and so forth. James Croft was telling us about ethical culture and how great it is. He's, yeah. Uh, well, I know James. Yeah, and it's a, it's a uh, they have a great history in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a shame that they're so localized. They're really kind of a New York thing now. Yeah, well, I actually posted about them at the Richard Dawkins Foundation Facebook page recently because, again, a lot of uh, non-religious, whether they call themselves atheist, agnostic, skeptic, whatever, they're not aware of ethical culture. But really, ethical culture was a huge movement in early 20th century America, uh, and a lot of – well, Albert Einstein was on their advisory board. It was a prominent, prominent thing, and you're right, you know, it's maybe not the same as it was then, but it's still a great – You've got a massive, beautiful building up there in New York. Yes, I've I've, I've preached there, if you will. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's great. You talked about um, you being a legislator in Maine. How did you present your religious views while you were a legislator or while you were campaigning? Oh, I'm sure I was elected with people thinking I was religious. Uh, I went to the University of Notre Dame for my undergraduate degree. It's on my resume. Uh, now, when I was elected... Uh, something that came about was that, you know, how they have the prayer at the beginning of the session. And this actually ties back into my work at Secular Coalition. But when I when they had a prayer at the beginning of the session, one time I ended up doing a prayer, and my prayer was uh, Einstein, Whitman, Susan Jacoby's Free Thinkers, if you're familiar with that book. Yeah. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, it's a very good book. And um, so clearly, if you listened, which often people don't, <laughs> <laughs> For those who did listen, it was very clear my viewpoint. And actually, one of the fundamentalist people on the other side of the aisle wrote a note to the speaker and said something like, well, that wasn't a real prayer. And I was kind of like laughing because I'm like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was my worldview, and I was proud of it, and I laid it out there. So 
but I didn't really have much problem. At that point, I was pretty secure. I mean, frankly, even to the, not to be overconfident, but it's been a few years, but even to this day, I think if I went back to my hometown and ran, I could run and win. If, if you ran, you know, maybe for higher office, it might be more of a challenge. But, you know, going back to Arizona, I knew a legislator, a woman named Kirsten Cinema, who was a legislator at the same time I was. When I instituted at Secular Coalition for America the 50-state plan, I called her up because our first state turned out to be Arizona because there's some great people in Arizona who were doing great organizing. That became our first state back in October 2010. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Blaine and uh, really just great people putting that together. And so I uh, said, let's have a big kickoff. Let's invite Kirsten. Kirsten was gracious enough to say she'd show up. She was a state rep then. She spoke at the kickoff. Uh, she said she could be identified as a secular elected official. She's been sworn in on a constitution, not a Bible. And, you know, you got to do what she's comfortable with. And then uh, she was elected to the state Senate. And now she's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, it's incredible. Got sworn in on a constitution. Uh, so very good. And, and I think the changes are coming. And in a place that's unexpected, like Arizona. And uh, recently, some of you may know, I got to know him uh, re uh, recently in San Diego. Uh, state Representative Mendez gave a very secular prayer if you will, uh, in the state legislature in Arizona. And a lot of this sprang sort of snowballed, maybe the wrong analogy for Arizona, but anyway. <laughs> but anyway, it snowballed from the 50-state plan, getting that organization going. And I really like what they're doing in Arizona because they're, they're, the lobbying, yes, and they have a paid lobbyist in Sarah Lane at the state level. But in addition to that, which I think is critically important, they kind of have a grassroots effort and approach. And that's what I think the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science can add to the mix is that, you know, that we can say, hey, let's let's help get these free thought conventions going in every state. Uh, let's talk about secular organizing. I'll come and do a grassroots training, whether it's Oklahoma or Vermont or whatever. And, and we, we, you know, we've been trying to do that here. We really, <laughs> we yeah. really have. Uh, but it is heartening to see a place like Arizona that is so, so strictly conservative you know, to elect these people and to allow this to happen there. It's, it's a, I'm kind right. of amazed. I haven't heard of this before. Like yeah, well, someone got sworn in on a constitution and it didn't make big news. It made some news about U S Congresswoman cinema. Yeah. And then, uh, and then it made some pretty big national news about representative Mendez in, in, uh, Arizona as well. Now here's a strategy that I want to suggest because people always always saying run for president, you know, this sort of thing, run for the city council. Hmm. Yes. Legislature. Okay. And including, you know, I don't know Oklahoma politics as well as you do, but the thing about Arizona, just to take that example, is you're the the sort of stereotype is partly true, if you will. There's so many places in Arizona where people like us would probably have, oh, zero chance, <laughs> you know, to get elected. But in almost every state, even the most conservative states, there's these pockets, not necessarily a pocket where you can elect a, you know, member of Congress always, sometimes, but there's often pockets like around a university or some liberal section of a city where you can elect a secular person to the state legislature, to the school board, to city council. And people ought to start looking for those and not run and say, the heck with all you guys, I hate religion. No, say, I'm going to work the budget. I'm going to do responsible public service. And I happen to not be religious, you know, just like I happen to be Lutheran or whatever, you know, and kind of approach it in that slow building you know we did have a friend do that recently ran for the the state house here yeah, yeah. 
Uh, he's, yeah, he's a former organizer of the Oklahoma Atheists, actually, and yeah. we're afraid that that would be used against him in the campaign. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, you know, and you don't win every time, uh, yeah. but I think it, that's one of the things I can, I hope, help people with, is I did run successfully for the state legislature uh, and won by pretty good margins every time. Uh, in my first time, I ran against an incumbent, uh, three-term incumbent Republican who was actually quite popular and uh, beat him by a strong margin. And so I know about grassroots campaigning, and I'm eager to talk to people, you know, come to all different states of the union and talk about how do you organize your free thought convention? How do you run for office yourself? How do we start influencing the legislative process? And speak about it from my experience having done all those things, you know. I was I was going to ask, what do you think is the how do how do the different organizations fit together? We've got the Secular Coalition for America, we've got these these dedicated church-state groups like Americans United, we've got these dedicated atheist groups like American Atheists and RDF. Do you have any thoughts on how they can work together better? Yeah, well, I mean that's why I made the 50-state proposal, and the plan uh, that I proposed at Secular Coalition was really about unifying groups. My understanding from Secular Coalition, which I think is a great group, uh, is uh, that they really they want to focus a lot on lobbying, which I think is excellent. Um, at the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, we have opportunities that are unique. Uh, the biggest opportunity is an opportunity called Richard Dawkins. What I mean by that <laughs> is that when I, I went and I, I don't know how many times I've been his opening speaker, probably 20-something times and over three tours of the U.S. now. And one was at Eastern Kentucky University. And this was not an anomalous example. It was fairly typical. There was 2,300 people. This is in rural Kentucky. It wasn't in Louisville. It was two hours outside of Louisville. I mean, it's in true Bible Belt country. And this place was packed, packed with secular people, most of them from that local area, so counter to the expectation of what you might think of that area. And yeah, I yeah. gave a speech about a 10-point vision of a secular America. You can actually go to YouTube and look up Sean Faircloth introduces Richard Dawkins and see it. Or Atheism and New Strategies, another video on YouTube, and see the 10-point vision of a secular America. But this crowd was roaring. I mean, they were roaring for a secular vision of America. And so Richard Dawkins in person is a huge power for organizing, and that's really a big part of where I'm focusing is organizing these people. Rather than just having Richard Dawkins show up, wonderful, exciting, he leaves, where's our organization? I want every time he shows up to be an organization that remains after he's gone. Next step is even more important, and that's online. So at the Richard Dawkins Foundation Facebook page, I've really been active. We've sort of activated that page in November, and I'm uh, very active on it now, working with others on our, our staff. Uh, and really fantastic uh, opportunity. Joel Gubbertson on the staff and I are working closely together on it. And uh, really, uh, you talk to millions of people. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> you talk to – now, this is international, of course, but you talk to millions of people a week who see posts from the Richard Dawkins Foundation Facebook page – our website has huge visitation as well. And my point is, is so when we say, hey, we're going to organize about this in Iowa or Oklahoma, uh, I mean, we're, we can't do it for every local skeptics in the pub meeting, but we can do yeah. it for major efforts. And when we do it, we can provide a lot of, of sort of social media firepower that's unique. There is nothing as visited as the Richard Dawkins platform, the Facebook page, website, and so forth. And... Uh, I want to see that utilized for social change, for organizing. In your book, uh, Attack of the Theocrats, 
Yeah. You say that you know the uh, wall that Jefferson built uh, between sep- dividing sep- uh, church and state has crumbled so terribly. What do you think? What, what do you mean by that? What what is what has been done to make it crumble? Well, uh, really, uh, chapter three in my book gives the m- many examples in those ten areas of law where people are harmed by religious bias. So that that's the, I guess I'd say the, uh, the key evidence of the crumbling is that chapter three. But the other, for instance, in chapter two of the book, I really go into American history and show one the truth that. Jefferson, Madison, also Washington and Adams, Adams, who was somewhat religious, but all the first four presidents were adamantly for separation of church and state. And I try to, again, with the toolkit uh, concept, I try to give you, the listener uh, uh, and the reader, a toolkit so they can concisely talk to their neighbors and say, well, no, this is what George Washington said. This is what Jefferson said. Make it easy for people to see this as evidence. But then I go through, sadly... Uh, the sad part of that chapter is go through what's happened since, particularly, frankly, since the Reagan era, when you've seen the rise of the religious right. And I think the problem is with a lot of people say you're born after, you know, uh, people born after, I don't know, a certain period, 1980 or whatever, they don't, to them, the conception is it's always been this way. Well, that's not true. And in fact, it's fairly recent that we've had this. I mean, as I quote Barry Goldwater a lot in my book, who's awesome. you know, the Mr. Conservative, Mr. Republican from back in the 60s, and I point out how... He would have had uh, no chance in the 2012 Republican primaries because he was so strongly for separation of church and state. So it's really the last 30 years. He said that before he even left office. He said, if I were to run, if I were to start over again, I wouldn't be able to make it in this in this era, the 80s. It is crazy. You go back and you you read those transcripts or you listen to those speeches. And you hear Barry Goldwater and JFK both around the same era talking about how church and state is absolutely fundamental to America. And I'm like, why do, why do we never hear that anymore? Why do we only hear that from the activists? I mean, Kennedy was really good on it. So was Dr. King, interestingly enough. Uh, Kennedy uh, really uh, was adamant, and obviously a part of people were feared about Catholicism, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was like in Kennedy's own mind. He, I don't think he ever... I think people needn't have been concerned about Catholicism as far as President Kennedy was concerned. But uh, he had to reassure them. But also I think he was sincere and he stuck with it. When he was president and the decision came down while he was president uh, that there wouldn't be government orchestrated prayer in school, he said, you know, listen, if you want to pray, go pray in the weekend. I mean, he was very cavalier is not the right word, but he was like he wasn't having it when people were saying, you know, this is a big disaster. He said, well, yeah, if you want to pray, just go pray at home, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and actually, Dr. King. Dr. King was the same way. And so, really, you had here's a you know maybe in my in my mind the most respected religious figure, but he was totally for separation of church and state. We got lots of good material here. Is there? I mean, there's there's so many things. I look at your whole career, from you know politics to secular coalition to RDF. I mean, is there anything in particular that you know you want us to know about? Well, I guess a key thing, I don't know about leaving off, but a, a key thing I hope I would leave you with is that I want to help in a, in a pragmatic way. So if you have listeners who say, we want to, whether it's Oklahoma, but also you know any other state of the union, say, we want to get into the pragmatic stuff of changing politics in our state, talk to me. I'll come talk to their group about that kind of nitty-gritty, if you will, uh, of organizing. And I encourage people... To go check out on YouTube, you can check out Atheism, A New Strategy is a speech I give on YouTube. 
there's another one uh, about the founders. I'm forgetting the name of that on YouTube, but people can find it if they want to look for, you know, talks I've given the talk about how the founders were strongly for separation of church and state. I hope you will check that out. And there's also uh, there's one about stopping the religious right. Four steps you can take. Uh, so all of my speeches, I really try to focus on not so much what I think, but more on what you can do uh, to really change society. And that's what I hope people can take from both my book and from uh, my talks on YouTube. The other one, I guess, in the last thought is you were talking about the issues of the children. That's really important to me because of my background, for one thing. My mom was a child protective worker. I was an assistant attorney general and did child protection cases. And you see a lot of horrible, horrible things with kids. And there's a, a video I do on YouTube called Can Religion Justify Bullying Children? And it is really, to me, heartbreaking to see example after example after example where it's not just the religion. I mean, that's bad enough. I'm talking about the law, <laughs> where the yeah. law helps religion do things that actually harm kids. And mm. it's kind of jaw-dropping. And if there's one video of mine that from a sort of, I don't know, compassion point of view, I hope people would watch, it's that can religion justify bullying children? Because I think a lot of even atheist people are just not aware of how bad it really is. I love what you're doing trying to refocus us on, first of all, empathy, the the human factor, what's really happening on the ground and away from, you know, just the the uh, atheology or the, you know, the philosophical yeah. arguments against religion, which I enjoy. They're really fun. Yeah. But, but I don't think that they're nearly as urgent as these things. And and the activism, the actual, you know, on the ground, grassroots, making this happen from the ground up. I really think we're the good guys, and sometimes we let ourselves get perceived as the negative or the bad and so forth. And I think using these issues, one, just because it's the right thing to do, but also because strategically, I think it's a really good way to make our case. Well, you have a passion and energy that rings uh, through the phone line. I just can't wait to have you here in Oklahoma. Yeah, same here. I'm looking forward to joining you guys and hanging out. We'll we'll uh, show you the town. We'll take you out and show you where all the good stuff is. It'll right, take about 15 minutes. <laughs> It'll take at least 20 minutes to show you all the good stuff. <laughs> you see him, and then we'll hang out. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Sean. Bye bye. Bye. The Oklahoma Atheists Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.oklahomaatheist.com. The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. Jared's music in the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archives Community Audio Collection, available at www.archive.org. To join discussion about the ideas presented in today's show, please visit our blog at blog.oklahomaatheist.com.